9 is the sermon text, very similar to what we saw in Exodus 28. Here the garments are made, and here the word of God. Of the blue, purple, and scarlet thread, they made garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place, and made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread out of fine woven linen, and they beat the gold into thin sheets and cut it into threads to work it in with the blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen into artistic designs. They made shoulder straps for it to couple it together. It was coupled together at its two edges. And the intricately woven band of his ephod that was on it was of the same workmanship, woven of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of fine woven linen and as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they set onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold They were engraved as signets are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. He put them on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he made the breastplate artistically woven like the workmanship of the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of fine woven linen. They made the breastplate square by doubling it. A span was its length and a span its width when doubled. And they set in it four rows of stones, a row with uh, sardius, a topaz, and an emerald, with the first row, a second row, a turquoise, sapphire, and the diamond, a third row, uh, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold in their mountings. There were twelve stones according to the names of the sons of Israel, according to their names engraved like a signet, each one with its own name according to the twelve tribes. And they made chains for the breastplate at the ends like like braided cords of pure gold. They also made two settings of gold and two rings uh, and put the the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And they put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings. On the ends of the breastplate, the two ends of the two braided chains they fastened in the two settings and put them on the shoulder straps, the ephod in the front, and they made two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it, which was on the inward side of the ephod. They made two other gold rings and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod toward its front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod with the blue cord so that it would be above the intricately woven band of the ephod and that the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the robe of the ephod of woven work all of blue and there was an opening in the middle of the robe like the opening in a coat of mail with a woven binding all around the opening so that it would not tear They made on the hem of the robe pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet, and a fine woven linen. And they made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around between the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe to minister in as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made tunics artistically woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, a turban of fine linen, exquisite hats of fine linen. Short trousers of fine woven linen and a sash of fine woven linen with blue, purple and scarlet thread made by a weaver as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving 
of a signet, holiness to the Lord, and they tied to it a blue cord to fasten it above the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all its furnishing, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets, the covering of ram skins dyed red, the covering of badger skins, and the veil of the covering, the ark of the testimony with its poles, and the mercy seat, the table, and all its utensils, and the showbread, the pure gold lampstand with its lamps, the lamps set in order, all its utensils and the oil for light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, the screen for the tabernacle door, the bronze altar, its grade of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the laver with its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its sockets, the screen for the court gate, its courts and its pegs, all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, and the garments of ministry to minister in the holy place, the holy garments of Aaron the priest, and the son's garments to minister as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it, as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. And Moses blessed them. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word, and we ask you that you might illumine even a text such as this, and help us to see the significance for us as new covenant believers of these priestly garments that Aaron wore and and the high priest after him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we are considering uh, the tabernacle which was constructed according to God's design, we uh, we are now considering, as we considered earlier, uh, the ministry of the priests who ministered in the tabernacle. It was it was constructed, it was erected for the sake of their ministry. And as part of uh, the design that God gave to Moses, the tabernacle was not only to be constructed, but so too were the garments. Almost as though when you read it, and it just struck me this way as I was reading it just now, almost as though uh, they were made together of one piece. They all stood together as one. And indeed, they were, they were all made of cloth, and so there was a certain similarity there. The thing to know about the Old Covenant priest was that their office was found uh, in two things, in the garments that they wore and then in their priestly consecration, uh, which we find in those earlier chapters. There's a chapter about the clothing, and then there's another chapter, chapter 29, about the consecration. But in that, we see the significance of the garments. What made Aaron uh, the high priest were the garments that he wore. And those distinguish him even from uh, the the lesser garments of the lesser priests. Uh, So this is what qualified him for office, together again, as I said, with his calling and consecration. But before we look at the garments themselves and uh, make several comments about that, I want to remind you once again of the central idea of the priesthood. What is a priest? What were his central functions? Uh, We find the best definition in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1. Let me read that to you. 
He says, for every high priest, and indeed we are speaking of the high priest here tonight, every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, if you keep reading through verse 4, you'll get an even clearer picture. But Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, is the best definition of the priesthood that you'll find in all of Scripture. And, uh, and in this definition, there are three main facets of his ministry. Uh, and, and these are three points that you not only find very plainly in the text, but which you will also find in Hugh Martin's book on the atonement. The first thing that you notice, and this is also clear in the selection of the first priests, and that is the personal relation he bears to the people. He is chosen from among men. That is, among the men he is called to represent. In the case of Aaron and his sons, it is the Israelites. In the case of Jesus, it is the elect. Not all men indiscriminately, but only those to whom he bears a relation as a priest. And he is appointed for men. So he's chosen from among them. He is appointed for them. He is a representative. This is something that we will see very clearly in the garments, the relation that he bears to the people as he performs his ministry. He carries them literally on his person. Number two, the relation he bears to God, which is really more important. The ministry on behalf of men is to God. Every priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. To God. That he might offer both gifts and sacrifices to whom? To God. On behalf of the people. So, and this is the kind of language you find in Hebrews, you find it in chapter 2 as well. In things pertaining to God, what is that about? What does that language mean? It means that his ministry pertains to God. It has a Godward focus. All that he does is directed toward, uh, toward God. Not only that, but uh, we understand that his office arises uh, from God. God is the one who calls. God is the one who sanctifies. God is the one who anoints. God is the one who sets apart, in other words, the priesthood for his own sake. But then number three, the priestly work of offering. His appointment, he is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. For whose sins? Well, the sins of the people he is representing in a priestly capacity. It is for them that he is offering both gifts and sacrifices for sins to God. And really, with all of that, you get a complete picture of the priesthood. He is, he is instituted uh, on behalf of men to minister to God primarily with respect to the sins of the people. Because the people need the guilt of sin removed. Remember, that's expiation. But, but they, they also need the wrath of God removed. And that's propitiation. The priesthood has reference to both of these. And, and as we know, uh, in another statement in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. There can be no propitiation. And so there is your general overview of the priesthood. It, ex it explains the work that we read in the Old Testament. But it also, more importantly, as Hebrews tells us, explains uh, the work of the cross. But now, uh, having seen the priesthood in general... I want to consider next the garments which were made in verses 1 through 31. That is not the whole of the uh, chapter, but it is the main focus. Just as we found in chapter 28, so now in chapter 39, the emphasis is on the priestly garments. And here I would make several observations. 
the first is that as we learn in chapter 28, they were, verse 2, for glory and for beauty. That's verse 2. They were also for consecration, verse 3. They were his equipment for his priestly office. Uh, chapter 28, verse 3. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister to me as a priest. And really without uh, this equipment, he was unable to perform his function. In fact, uh, we get the sense uh, in another verse, I don't remember which one it is, uh, but I, I think it says something like so that he, he may not die. So the sense was that it, it was as much for his safety that he be equipped with holiness as he ministered uh, in the presence of God for the people. It was, as we see here, a type of something far better. Uh, his, his holiness, he being a sinner, was put on, which in many ways is symbolic of the whole of the old covenant economy. Uh, contrasted to Christ, we later read, who is undefiled, separated from sinners, whose holiness was personal and intrinsic. Nevertheless, there was a real holiness that was conveyed and conferred upon the, the high priest in the garments. They were sanctified by the Lord himself. In the garments, we discover the real nature of his office. And especially, uh, as I already indicated, the relation that he bore to the people and to God. And so uh, we'll see this now looking at the four main features of the garments. There are more details that are present. There were, there were other smaller pieces of the garments. But in both chapters 28 and 39, there were four main, um, there were four main pieces of clothing that only the high priest wore. Uh, and, and, and I'll even be honest with you that, uh, that I, I needed to look at a picture to really get it in my head. But maybe you don't need the picture. Maybe I, I can help you to, to understand it without it. So uh, the, the, the first thing that we see actually are the materials that were used in verse 1. But, but just setting that aside, we come immediately to verse 2, and that was the making of the ephod. The ephod was like an outer robe. Uh, which distinguish him from the common priests and their robes. They had robes, but, but not like his. And the most important feature of the ephod were the two stones that were placed upon his shoulders, each representing six tribes uh, from uh, the twelve tribes of, of Israel. And, and, and here we discover, not so much in the ephod, but what was placed upon the shoulders, the real essence of the priestly office. The fact that he bore the people representatively on his body, in his priestly clothes. He bore the names of the sons of Israel on his shoulders. And, and he brought them with him, as it were, into the presence of the Father. They were to be on his shoulders, the scripture tells us, as a memorial. So that the Lord would always remember the people as he ministered in their place. And so the importance of the ephod was found on the, on the shoulder piece and the stones that were placed there. Uh, upon the ephod was, um, was a breastplate. And once again, the importance of the breastplate were the stones that were placed there in four rows, three, three each. And, and each of those stones, again, represented the twelve tribes of Israel. Again, we remember that as he, as he represents people, it is not all people indiscriminately, but only those to whom uh, he bears 
a priestly relation. It is they, we now discover, whom he bears on his heart, not just on his shoulders. It is they whom God is calling for him to recognize and to sympathize with as as their priest. Uh, the sense really is that God remembers them in in the shoulders, but the priest is to remember them on the breastplate. The third piece was the robe. And the importance of the robe, again, we notice it isn't the clothing itself, but there was something special about each piece of clothing. The importance of the robe in the case of the high priest were the pomegranates and the bells in alternate fashion attached to the bottom. And uh, the significance of that was, much of this you have to discover from chapter 28, but the significance of that was so that the people would hear when the high priest went into the tabernacle to minister in the presence of God on behalf of the people. So that they might, in one sense, gain an assurance uh, that, that here the priestly work is going on, but also so that they might join their prayers along with his. And it was, I said earlier, that he may not die. It is in connection with those uh, that that warning was attached in chapter 28. The last piece of clothing was the headpiece or the turban. But again, that was not the primary thing or point of significance. It was the golden crown that was attached with the inscription, Holiness to the Lord. This was, uh, as I indicated earlier, the holiness of the Lord himself, which he placed and uh, literally engraved upon the person of the priest as he carried out his priestly duties. It was a holiness which he bore by the Lord's own uh, inscription. And it was this we read interestingly in chapter 28 that enabled him to bear the sins uh, of the people and of the holy things. But you see, it was the holiness... Not uh, which he possessed himself personally, but it was as with his garments put on. It was the holiness of the Lord placed upon the person of the high priest. And so there are the, the pieces of clothing, but there are other things that can be said here. Indeed, I preached an entire sermon on those four pieces. I'm not really interested in doing that again here. I just... Well, I'm just really reviewing up to this point. But there are other things that we can notice about the priest and his clothing, uh, which stand out, uh, which stand out here in this particular passage. And one of, uh, one of those points can be found in verse 1. We read, they made garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place. Garments of ministry for ministering. In other words, as clothing, the clothing was made for service or for ministry. That is, the priests were clothed that they might serve and they might minister. The clothing equipped them for their ministry. Matthew Henry says, holy garments were not made for men to sleep in. But they were made, as he implies, for men to put on and to get to work. And there's a spiritual principle here that has a broader application beyond the high priesthood. As indeed we see that Christ was clothed with our humanity. 
and indeed with a humility and meekness as he laid aside his former glory to serve and to bless. And so we see uh, his priestly ministry is consisting in the clothing that he assumed. And this was because the ministry he undertook was likewise that of a priesthood. And requisite to his priesthood was that he, he be made like us, putting on the garments of our humanity, Hebrews chapter 2. But notice the inversion. The priest, the sinners, put on holiness. Christ is the sinless Son of God, put on humanity, that he might be made in the likeness of sinful flesh without sin. Nevertheless, the, the, the point remains. You must bear a relation to the people as one who is holy. And so Christ put on his garments, that of humanity, in order to assume the office of a priest and to serve others. But another thing that we could notice is uh, the holy clothing of the saints, spoken of in the New Testament, especially in Revelation, where we are said to appear before God in splendid clothing. Uh, This is, in fact, common language in Revelation. I'll just read one passage. Revelation chapter 7, verse 13. Where we read, let's see, verse verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? Now, if you, if you get a sense of what we have in the, in the Old Testament, perhaps that kind of language is not so, not so striking or so puzzling to us. There is an, important in the idea, uh, an importance in the idea of the clothing. Or, or, or the white clothing that the priest, or, or the bride, excuse me, by which she has made herself ready for the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. This is the kind of idea and imagery that you find seized upon later on in the Bible. But another thing that we could say about the garments in the way that they are presented here in chapter 39 of Exodus is, again, as we've seen throughout, something Moses highlighting for us, and that is the significance of the details, the meticulous fashion by which they were, uh, they were instructed and that they were made, and then all of this was recorded by Moses. And then it was, uh, or, or I guess before that, it was, it was uh, submitted for inspection by Moses. One of the things that you find in this chapter, and you find it here more than in the other chapters, is as the Lord commanded, verse 2, as the Lord commanded, verse 5, as the Lord commanded, verse 7, over and over and over again. And so we see again a principle that new covenant believers need to grasp, and that is that the details matter, especially the details of God's ordinances and, and design answer to his purpose. If God has laid down something in a detailed way, there is a reason for it. And we have good reason to follow his law in a detailed way. We ought to realize, in other words, as the priests and those who uh, prepare the priests for their ministry, that real holiness consists in doing all the things the Lord commands. All of them. Proceeding admittedly from an inward principle, but nevertheless an inward principle that works itself in all of the details of life. As found in God's law. But that brings us to the next point, And that is uh, beginning in verse 32. We see that the work was submitted to Moses for inspection and approval. And this is something else that is worth noting and pondering about. What did Moses find when they submitted the work for approval? 
verse 32. Let me read that. Then, uh, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that they had commanded Moses. So they did, and they brought the tabernacle to Moses, and, and, and the, the garments as well. But again, you see the unity. In bringing the tabernacle, they brought the garments. What did Moses find? He found, as we read, that they did all as they were commanded. Perhaps that is the explanation as to why Moses takes such pains to recount once again all of the details. Because he wants us to see they really did everything they were told to do. Perhaps, let us be honest and realistic, that something small was amiss here or there in the tabernacle or the priestly garments. No doubt there there was, for no work is done perfectly in this life. But Moses was no fault finder. As far as he was concerned, it was all done just right. For where the work was done close enough to him, it was perfect. Not that he ignored the details, for details were the very essence of the work. It's what mattered here. But as Matthew Henry says, who seizes upon this point, he was too candid to notice small faults where there were no great ones. It's an important principle of leadership, I think, for fathers, for husbands, for employers. For elders. Another thing that I might notice here about the whole transaction that was occurring is that we're always being evaluated. Our work is always subject to scrutiny. There is always someone who is either approving or disapproving, whether the world or God or fellow believers. And it is good, as the New Testament reminds us, to always keep this in mind, to labor as uh, a workman who is approved and So I would also notice this principle, that it is a good thing to be a workman approved, to have the mentality of the Apostle Paul that I labor not for the the praise of men, but for the praise of God, recognizing that on the last day my work will be evaluated not by Moses, not by the minister, but by the Lord himself. And it is from him that we will receive praise and commendation or else disapproval and thus saved as though by fire, if at all. But that is a good thing. That is something that motivates and inspires and gives purpose to the work that we're doing. Everything that God is calling us to do has value because it is done under his watchful eye. And it is something for which we will all give an answer. This should be the goal of all of our service, especially in connection with the houses of God's worship. That we, like the people here before Moses, will one day stand before God. And we will be commended. We hope. We hope that we will receive, as Jesus says on the last day, that commendation, well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you also notice, and this is another picture of the Christian life, that there, was, there, there were no wages here. They labored as unto the Lord, and Moses didn't say, well done, here are, here are your, your wages. The only wages that matter in the service of the Lord is the commendation and the blessing, both of God's ministers, but especially of God himself. The people didn't labor for wages. They, they labored only for approval as a workman approved. And that is a picture, as I say, of the whole of the Christian life and of the ministry and the service that God gives us. But the last thing that I would notice about this passage occurs simply in verse 43, where we read uh, that Moses looked over all the work, indeed they had done it, 
as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. And Moses blessed them. With that, the account of the building of the tabernacle is completed. And Moses blessed them. The final point is the blessing of Moses. And in, the, in, in, in that, the, those few words, we see the office of, of the minister. Moses here being the minister of the people of God, shining through. For he is not only appointed to teach as Moses had done, and to rebuke and to encourage, uh, and even to evaluate. We see Moses doing all of those things. But he's also appointed by God to bless, to bless the people, especially as he finds them busy in the service of the Lord. This, too, is part of his office, as we later see in the the ministry of the Levites, blessing the people. And so we see how the blessing, this point I do not think is incidental, but, but key to the whole concept of blessing. The blessings are connected with the tabernacle as the place of worship and priestly service. It is not incidental that we find Moses blessing them at this moment, at the completion of the tabernacle. This is something that the whole idea of blessing and the activity is something we find Jesus doing in the Gospels in his earthly ministry. We find the apostles in in, uh, their letter writing ministry and certainly we can be sure in their personal ministry as well, blessing the people. Pronouncing the blessing of God upon them. What are we to make of this? Perhaps we are too apt to read over these statements too quickly and miss their significance. The scripture is filled with them. For one thing, as I've said, it's a fitting picture of the ministry. Something that you find in both covenants. Something that is done even today. The minister blessing the people. I wonder if you understand the significance of that. Again, it's worth pausing and pondering. Especially in connection with the tabernacle, the place of worship. It is a fitting expression of praise and worship. It is fitting that the people should receive a blessing from the minister in times of worship. That's the main point to see. And so, we find that blessings are part of the prescribed worship in our directory of public worship. In the elements of of worship, I believe there are ten things prescribed. And one of those ten things, along with prayer and the preaching and the sacraments, is the pronouncement of blessing from the minister upon the people. And ordinarily it says that the service should open and close with a word of blessing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we open. That's a blessing. Likewise, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That is me pronouncing as a minister of God the blessing upon the people. Do you understand what is occurring there any more than you understand what these simple words mean that Moses blessed the people? Well, let us try to be plain. What is happening when the blessing is pronounced is that God is blessing us. There is no need to complicate this. Let those who hear these words of blessing know that they are blessed indeed. Another way to say this, viewing this as an element of worship. An element is just something that is commonly found in worship as prescribed in God's word. Another way to put this is to say that this is a real means of grace. Along with the sacraments and the prayer and the singing and all the other things we do. God does not uh, set up incidental or meaningless tokens in his services. But when he prescribes something, there's real meaning. There's real blessing. This is one of the many ways that God is seeking to build up and to bless. Yes, bless his people. 
One of the ways that Jesus Christ in his great uh, high priesthood now is ministering grace to poor, feeble saints such as we, as we carry out our pilgrimage through the wilderness. We depend upon it. We need God to bless us through the ministry of ministers. Especially as we gather in times of worship. In worship, Let me just make a side note here. But it's of some importance because we're talking about the blessing. Our directory of worship divides worship into two parts. The part from God to the people and the part from the people to God. The blessing is one of the parts of God to the people. That is important. You really ought to look up and receive when the blessing is being pronounced. This is not a prayer. Praying times are times to close your eyes. That is part of the the portion of the people to God. But that is not what a blessing is. This is something God is pronouncing upon the people. It is something that you ought to look up and to receive. And to realize in faith that if God should pronounce that you are blessed through his minister. That you are blessed indeed. But above all let us see that it is Jesus Christ who blesses us. Our great high priest. That is Jesus Christ himself who pronounces his blessing upon us through his ministers. Thus we see both in the apostolic salutation uh, or in the benediction. It is especially the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that is bestowed upon us and emphasized. For that is the greatest blessing. It is to receive grace from Jesus Christ. And there's nothing strange about this. To find such things in worship, Christian worship. Because as we find him in the Gospels, we find him as one who stands always ready to bless and to save. And to encourage and to comfort. And to offer his grace. And so it's fitting to find the same thing being offered today in the worship of Christians who gather in his name. But let us also see, insofar as the priesthood extends to all believers... That we too, that is beyond the minister, extending to all of you, all of us are constantly called upon to bless others. To speak a word of encouragement in season. To speak words of life and edification. This is the constant emphasis of the New Testament and the constant calling of believers. In other words, if you think of what is occurring here, not just in connection with worship, but in connection with Christians who who were... uh, exercising real holiness. They were busy about the work of God. Uh, Matthew Henry has a funny line. He says, church work is usually slow work, but somehow they did this in a fast way. They made fast work of church work. And when you see that, is that not a time not only for the minister, but also the people to speak a word of blessing and a word of encouragement when people are doing work which is worthy of approval? But the last point for us to see is just as he says in verse 32 that the work here is finished. And that brings us nearly to to the end of Exodus. We need not trouble ourselves over the details of the tabernacle anymore. We have gone over them in great detail. But we might be thankful that we did as much as we have thus far. For here is a great help to us, the New Testament believer, who is called upon to enter the high heavenly sanctuary. To draw near to the throne of grace as we read in Hebrews. And there to find another priest ministering day by day. Even Jesus Christ our great high priest. And to receive grace and salvation and blessing from him. All of which. The greatest blessings of the new covenant. All of which are unintelligible without the help 
of our Old Testaments. And so realize the importance of the tabernacle. Don't be so ready to leave it behind. Realize the, de- the importance of the details. This tent in the wilderness and the priests who ministered there. Uh, and with those words, let us uh, close and, and respond to God's word by standing together and sing a hymn uh, about the blessing of God. Hymn number 527. Lord, I hear showers of blessing. Please stand.